When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the brand new series of Hidden Histories, in partnership with the Arts and Humanities Research Council and the BBC's prestigious New Generation Thinkers Scheme. Since 2010, the New Generation Thinker Scheme has developed a new generation of 100 academics who can bring the best of university research and scholarly ideas to a broad audience through the media and public engagement. It's a chance for early career researchers to cultivate the skills to communicate their research findings to those outside the academic community. I am thrilled to be able to invite a selection of New Generation Thinkers to discuss their research on the podcast. The guests on this series of Hidden Histories discuss a multitude of fascinating topics, from famine relief over the last two centuries to the dark side of the Italian Renaissance. There is more information on the New Generation Thinkers scheme on the Arts and Humanities Research Council webpage, detailing events, programmes and reading material relating to the scheme and the NGT's research. I'll link all of this in the show notes, but in the meantime, I hope you enjoy this special series. Edmund Richardson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much. It's like wonderful to have a chance to talk to you. So firstly, what a story. I mean, this, I was reading the material that you sent me and it reads like a fiction from a protagonist's perspective on a journey of discovery without trying to sound too much like Michael Palin. And so this is all about the discovery of an ancient city and the journey that Charles Masson went on to find it and all of the trials and tribulations that he faced on that journey. So firstly, who was Charles Masson? So thank you so much. And you're absolutely right. This is one of those stranger than fiction stories. And generally speaking, when I tell anyone about it, the first question is, yeah, but that didn't really happen, did it? Uh, But despite the best efforts of a lot of the characters involved, this is a true story. And it's Protagonist is indeed Charles Masson, who's really a very ordinary British soldier in the British East India Company in the 19th century. Ordinary working class kid from London, enlists in the British East India Company, hoping for fame and fortune. Gets shipped out to India, spends the best part of a decade marching and sweating and leading up and down India for the greater glory of um, the British Empire's account books. And then basically gets completely fed up one day and walks away from his regiment he deserts, which of course immediately um, makes him a wanted man. And he embarks on one of the most kind of remarkable journeys of the 19th century, He spends the best part of a decade wandering around northern India and Afghanistan and into the Middle East. Um, He 
goes to places no Westerner has ever been to before. He sees things no Westerner has ever seen before. And amidst these you know, years of extraordinary journeys, he develops this obsession with Alexander the Great and Alexander's lost cities. And he devotes his life to finding one of Alexander's lost cities in Afghanistan. So firstly, for those who don't know who might be living under a rock, I don't know, can you give me a bit of background on who exactly is Alexander the Great? He is obviously a household name, but exactly who was he and when and where was he active? So Alexander is one of those characters about whom everyone has a story and just about none of the stories agree. The facts as we know them are scanty enough, but Alexander was born in Macedon in the 4th century BC, son of the king Philip. And he inherits the throne very young after his father's death, and he embarks on one of the history's most remarkable campaigns of discovery and conquest, which takes him from Macedon to Asia Minor to Egypt, and then through the entire heartland of the Persian Empire, which was then the world's superpower, you know, a nation of riches and power and on a scale beyond the dreams of any European um, city-state at the time. And Alexander takes the power of Persia to pieces in a few years of campaigning. He overthrows the king of kings, Darius III. He proclaims himself king of kings, proclaims himself pharaoh of Egypt, lord of Asia. And then when he seems to have more wealth and power than any European in history, he keeps going. He leads his army, what was literally off the edge of the map for Europeans, into Afghanistan, into contemporary Pakistan and India into battles with elephants and unknown kings until his exhausted soldiers finally lay down their arms by the side of a river and will go no further. Alexander leads his by now exhausted and half-broken army back to Persia. He dies in Babylon in his early 30s. Um, Some say he drank himself to death, some say he was poisoned, some say he had a fever and Before his body is cold, the stories are being told about him. Alexander is probably of anyone in the ancient world, apart from Jesus Christ himself, is the person whom we have the most material and we know the least for certain. Yeah. So it's almost so there is is some fact tied up, like little fact. It's a lacuna in fact, but it's tied up with a lot of legend, basically. Absolutely. So the facts, we know where he went, we know what he did, but why he did it is pretty much a mystery. And there are huge sort of swathes of absolutely, you know, hair-raising, weird and wondrous details in even the most sober narratives of Alexander. You get stories of him, you know, descending to the bottom of the sea in a glass bubble, (laughs) flying to the skies borne by eagles, battling dragons, seducing or being seduced by the queen of the Amazons, you know, magic and wonder and giant spiders and, you know, red-hot statues and automata and magical cities. Basically, everyone has a story about Alexander and people tend to use his story to make sense of their own. So Alexander becomes, for some, the great conqueror. 
for others the great explorer, for others the great destroyer of literature and of culture. He is he's someone where very few of people's ideas agree on what he did and what he stands for. So it's quite similar in some ways to the legend or the cult around King Arthur. And it's interesting because obviously Charles Masson, as you're gonna as you're gonna talk about, went off and he tried to discover more about Alexander. But this is sort of following a decades, just decades, centuries of interest in trying to uncover more about King Arthur and, you know, the quest for the Holy Grail and that sort of thing. It sort of speaks of similar of a similar sort of interest in a way. So what do you think sparked Charles Masson's obsession with Alexander the Great enough to make him desert the army in India? Or do you think that the obsession came after that? So I think the King Arthur comparison is really interesting. And there's a actually a scholar, Fatato, who's argued that a lot of the roots of the stories of King Arthur can be traced to something called the Alexander Romance, which is this Egyptian text about the adventures of Alexander, where Alexander's true father is actually a, um, an Egyptian pharaoh and sorcerer who sneaks into Alexander's mother's bedroom disguised as the Egyptian god Amun and various hijinks ensue. But in terms of Masson's own obsession... I think it got started later on. I think it got started as he was wandering around India and Afghanistan with these stories of Alexander rattling around in his head. People people talk about the classics being the furniture of the mind for a lot of people in the 19th century. These are if people got to go to school, got to get an education, it was often a very classical education. You'd learn about Latin and Greek and very little else in a lot of schools. So he seems to have started to realize that Alexander's life had been written about, generally speaking, by people who'd never seen almost any of the places where he'd actually campaigned. They'd never been to Persia, they'd never been to Afghanistan, they'd never been to northern India. That went both for the sort of academic historians of the age who tended to write just from texts rather than from looking at kind of material and archaeological evidence. And that went for the ancient historians as well. Like our most reliable source on Alexander of the ancient historians is the historian Arian, who writes many centuries after Alexander's life, and he writes from you know, Greece and Rome. Um, he's never, you know, he doesn't go to Afghanistan to see for himself. So Masson realized that of all these hundreds and thousands of people who'd written about Alexander, he was one of the few who was actually on the spot. And he seems to have seen a version of Alexander's story which had not been told before. Rather than the conquering hero, like traveling across the world in a blaze of glory, he saw, just like himself, a lonely man trying to keep warm by a fire in the winter on an Afghan mountainside. And he saw a way to tell the story in a way that no one else had and in a way that no one else could. Where did he begin his search? I mean, this feels like a huge undertaking. Where did he start? And what do you think led to his discovery? So what was the beginning of the search and where did he go from there? 
Well, he actually began his search by lying about it. And that seems to have what, uh, and the success of his lies seemed to have been what spurred him on. So he was actually, um, he was actually um, staying with some British officers in the Middle East. Um, he claimed to be an American traveler from Kentucky. And so these British officers, very anxious to like make a good impression, put him up, open their finest wines, listen to his stories. No idea that they were entertaining a wanted deserter who should have been like arrested and put to death pretty much on site. So they entertain Masson, and Masson tells his stories of, you know, he talks about lots of places he'd never set foot in in his life, the parties of St. Petersburg, the streets of Paris, the fields of Kentucky, and they, they eat all this stuff up. And then he says, well, I got a really special story for you. When I was in the Punjab, I was making my way through this, like, densely forested place, and I came across this gigantic mound and I talked to the people in a village nearby, and they said it was an ancient city. And I dug around in the soil, and I found these coins with Alexander's face on them, and an illustration of his favorite horse, Bucephalus, on the other side. So I realized that this had to be one of Alexander's cities. And the British officers who were entertaining him are on the edge of their seats, right? They're absolutely spellbound. It's like he's, he's announced that he's got, you know, the Philosopher's Stone and the Cure for Cancer all, like, rolled up into one thing. And they're like, could we see these things? Could we see these coins? Where is the city? Can you show us on the map? And Mouse was like, eh, so sorry. I got robbed of everything. So, and I lost the papers and I don't know where I was and I don't have the coins. And they were like, so sorry. But they were still like, and this, this is, remember, someone who was a private soldier in the East India Company's army, right? Uh, who and private soldiers were thought of as the ultimate kind of expendable, why bother to care about them sort of people. And these are British, the British elite officers who would never have looked twice at Masson when he was an ordinary soldier. But now they are like sitting on the edge of their seats and treating him like he's this incredible man and hanging on his every word. And he's like, hmm, this is interesting. Uh, this is not something I've experienced before. And it makes him think, my God, maybe maybe this is my chance. Maybe this is my ability, my moment to make a name for myself. And in the 19th century, chances like that for people like Mass and for ordinary working class kids would come along once in a lifetime if they come along at all. So he's like, maybe, maybe this is my chance to like not just tell Alexander's story but rewrite my own maybe this is my way to to make something of myself and so he sets out for real now in search of Alexander's lost cities and what did he find so his first problem was of course where to begin right you can't really just just turn up in a market and say, "Okay, take me to your lost cities, please." <laughs> um, it it has been done occasionally. It was how uh, Burkhardt found Petra. He basically just was like, "Take me to Petra," and everyone was like, "Well, okay, if you like." Um, it's not really a lost city because we know where it is, but fine, here's Petra. But it doesn't work, of course, for lost cities which are genuinely lost, which are buried beneath, you know, thousands of years of rubble and soil and other buildings and cultivation. And the European scholarship had no idea where many of Alexander's cities were. I should say, Alexander founded not just the Alexandria in Egypt that we all know about, but over a dozen more cities, at least a dozen, some say as high as, you know, 50 or 60, 
all named for himself, all named Alexandria. He's like this sort of Johnny Appleseed of cities. He basically leaves them where leaves them wherever he goes, and he goes to a lot of places. So Masson is interested in one in particular. It's called Alexandria Beneath the Mountains or Alexandria of the Caucasus. And 19th century scholarship thought it was somewhere around Kandahar in Afghanistan. But Masson thought that the scholars, none of whom remember, had ever been to Afghanistan, were mistaken. He thinks it's near Kabul. So he spends a winter in Kabul, wandering around the markets, dressed kind of raggedy, green cap on his head, no socks on his feet, just looking looking like this sort of slightly, slightly out of it traveler. And he, he just listens to stories. He listens to the storytellers in the bazaar. He asks if anything ancient has ever been found in the region. And he keeps hearing stories about the plain of Bagram, which is about you know, 40 miles or so from Kabul. And he keeps on hearing that like ancient coins and relics were found in the soil. So he waits to spring and when, you know, you could travel outside the city and when the ground was, you know, soft enough to allow people to dig. And he decides, okay, I'm going to try. I'm going to see if these stories are correct. And he rents himself a sort of ill-tempered little uh, pony and he rides out of Kabul towards Bagram um, in search of Alexander the Great. Now, firstly, it looks like he's not going to get anywhere. Turns up in a lot of villages, asks a lot of people, and everyone says, no ancient coins have ever been found, no relics have ever been found, there's nothing to your stories of Alexander the Great. He's about to give up, and then an old man brings out a single ancient copper coin. And Masson holds it up to the light and looks at it. It's battered, it's defaced, it's impossibly old. It's like a message from another world. And it tells him his hunch might be correct. It might just be Alexandria. So he pays the old man extravagantly. And immediately, all the people who told him before that they had no ancient coins, they had no ancient relics, they had nothing like this, immediately go into their houses one after the other and bring out sack after sack after sack <gasps> of ancient coins. Masson runs and rides back to Kabul with his pockets absolutely full of the ancient past. And that's how he comes across the first traces of Alexander's lost city. I'm going to ask a boring question now, really logistical. How did he fund a dig like that? This is the puzzle he immediately confronts when he gets back to Kabul, right? Um, he realizes he's just spent all of his money, which is not a very good idea. And he also realizes that you can't excavate a lost city on your own, right? It's never been done. You can cross a mountain on your own. It might not be very wise, but you can do it. But you can't excavate a lost city on your own. Even if, like, with a shovel and a lot of hope, you manage to dig one trench and you very luckily hit on exactly the right place, how would you kind of lift gigantic blocks of masonry on your own? How would you manage to kind of transport anything on your own? So it can't be done. He does a very risky and, as it turns out, very foolhardy thing. He writes to someone in the British East India Company who he'd heard about as a like obsessive, who's, who's someone who's as obsessive about the ancient past as he was. And he talks about what he's doing and he asks if this person called Henry Pottinger might be able to help him. And Henry Pottinger is delighted to hear from this random person called Charles Masson in Kabul and random, delighted to help with this excavation of Alexander's lost cities. And he sends Masson a bunch of money and he helps 
Masson fund his excavations. But this does end up putting Masson back on the radar of the British East India Company, which of course is a very bad idea because they currently are still searching for him as a wanted deserter. So yeah, he he gets some money out of the East India Company, but that um, soon catches up with him when they realize who he actually is. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. So what? I'm sort of, I feel like I'm sort of on the edge of my seat. I'm like, what happened next? <laughs> Well, what happens next is Masson toddles along very well for a while. He finds not just ancient coins, but you know dozens of incredible artifacts, everything from sculpted jade to sculptures to gold and vessels to you know incredible caskets. He finds not just relics of Alexander's city but some of the earliest artifacts of Buddhist Afghanistan, because, of course, Afghanistan, before it was a very strongly Islamic country, um, was one of the earliest and the the most um, devoted centers of Buddhist worship. So Masson finds what is some of the most incredible Buddhist sites in Afghanistan, 
these incredible kind of jewel-encrusted caskets. So he goes on very happily for for a while, like making these remarkable discoveries and finding these wonderful things. And then one day he gets a letter from Britain's spymaster in Afghanistan and northern India, who's this um, slightly reptilian creature called Claude Wade. And Wade basically says to Masson, I know who you are and you belong to me now. Um, he basically blackmails Masson into becoming a spy for the British East India Company. He says, if you do exactly as we say, and if you spy on your friends in Afghanistan for us, then maybe we'll pardon you. And if you don't, well, you can expect to be put to death in a particularly unpleasant manner. So Masson is sort of drawn into this web of blackmail and intrigue, particularly as Britain starts to expand the, the fringes of the East India Company rule towards Afghanistan and starts to look covetously towards Afghanistan. And Masson is kind of blackmailed into kind of reporting on the whispers of the Kabul court and building intelligence networks across Central Asia. It makes him absolutely miserable, but unsurprisingly, he's an extremely good spy, and he's soon basically shaping a lot of um, Western and European knowledge of Afghanistan. So he's kind of dividing his time between um, these very disagreeable um, kind of intelligence work and also sneaking out of Kabul by night, um, often in disguise, to check on the progress of his excavations. So it's a spy come espionage, I'm sorry, um, an espionage come archaeology story. Was he actually successful in, in uncovering the city or was it, was it the, just the artefacts that he, he got as far to find? So he found a bunch of structures. He found some buildings and some walls. He was never able to like positively make the identification to his own satisfaction, though Modern scholarship has confirmed a huge amount of his ideas and suppositions. And today we're pretty sure that Alexandria is indeed exactly where he thought it was. And the city and the walls that he was uncovering were exactly Alexander's lost city. Masson's story comes to a kind of rather sad and, and disjointed end when Britain essentially decides to, the British East India Company decides to invade Afghanistan for the first time. Masson is given a chance to join the invading British army. He's asked to be the sort of chief of intelligence for Afghanistan. And, but he decides that however much he would like to stay, however much he would like to use this kind of power and status to discover, to, to finish his excavations and discover Alexander's lost city. He just can't do it. He just can't bear to betray his friends. So he walks away from his job as a spy. He walks away from the East India Company. He resigns everything. And, and the British, in consequence, shut him out of Afghanistan. They prohibit him from coming back. And he sort of hangs around... You know, he spends, he spends a winter um, living in a hovel in the back streets of Karachi, just um, drinking and weeping and writing. And he writes this absolutely, you know, mudslinging attack on the British imperialism and the East India Company and the invasion of Afghanistan. He names names, he spills secrets, he shows all the kind of British elite um, in the most unflattering light. And of course, every single publishing house in Britain rejects it. 
And he sort of sinks in mass and sinks into this kind of deep depression and decides to go back to Britain to try to find a publisher and find some money and like get back, find a way back to Afghanistan. And the day after his ship leaves the docks in India, the revolt breaks out against British rule in Afghanistan. The British army is surrounded, it's cut off, and this is the um, British invasion of Afghanistan where infamously of the army of thousands, only one man makes it out alive. Everyone else is either killed or taken prisoner. So after that, Afghanistan is closed to mass and forever. And he spends a very sort of sad and like disjointed and disappointed later life um, living in the suburbs of London and taking the horse-drawn bus into London to like sit in the British Museum and read and dreaming of the flower gardens of Kabul and of his old life sitting beneath the trees in the Afghan sunlight. And he never makes it back to Afghanistan, but um, he leaves this indelible and remarkable legacy, um, not just about his discovery of, of Alexander's lost city, but of his discovery of just what this country was like and what the world was like after Alexander's campaign. As British scholarship at the time saw this battle between East and West, right? It's us and them, it's East and West, it's, you know, in the very unpleasant dichotomy of the time, civilization and barbarism, right? What Masson finds is something very different. He finds Greeks that didn't want to suppress Afghan culture, they wanted to learn from it. He sees Afghan rulers adopting Greek gods. He sees, you know, there's this wonderful coin he finds, which is issued by an Afghan ruler who rules from Alexander's city. And the script is in ancient Greek. And on the back, there's this Afghan ruler sitting on a Roman magistrate's chair. And the head on the front is not of the Afghan ruler, but it's of Augustus, the first emperor of Rome. So there's this Roman and Greek and Afghan kind of syncretism and collision that's happening here, which is this entirely different way that culture's connected, which was completely beyond and um, different from how everyone had thought about the way the world worked beforehand. What was the process of research for this book for you? Because, I mean, you were retracing Charles Masson's footsteps. And am I right in, in thinking that you found a few items that were of particular significance for you? And could you talk about that experience as a historian and what it means to uncover something yourself and find something that is very, very tangible regarding your 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 period of interest and, and Charles Masson himself? So it was an oddly sort of all-consuming experience you know we're, we're often taught as historians that we're meant to be however interested in our subjects sort of detached from them to a degree we need we need distance we need objectivity and we need a sort of dispassion and dispassion was exactly the opposite of of my experience with Basson. you know i came across him entirely by accident when i was looking at Alexander's cities and I ended up falling down a rabbit hole and staying there for almost a decade and Masson's story is scattered across the world really a lot of his finds are in the British Museum a lot of his papers are in the British Library but then more of his story is scattered everywhere from you know a small town in Pennsylvania to little villages in 
India to his spy reports are hidden in the you know the back rooms of the tomb of a Mughal courtesan in Lahore in Pakistan. So I found myself just drawn into this world um, more and more. And for years, every 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 so often, I'd managed to sort of scrape together a little money and hop on a plane and go to India and um, try to find a little more and a little more of his story. And it came together gradually, one piece at a time, a little bit red and behind and the sort of beneath the sort of fluorescent lights of the National Archives of India, a little bit in this library hidden beneath the streets of London, a little bit coming across this golden casket in the British Museum, a little bit um, in this village halfway up one of the Himalayan foothills um, full of people who consider themselves to be Alexander the Great's descendants. And the family business, by by the way, is no longer world conquest, but um, growing what's what's said to be the most potent marijuana in the world. <laughs> um, but um, so if you've ever wondered what Alexander's descendants are doing, that is it. No, I um, but uh, it was strange because it was a story about that I was writing about two, you know, unwise, all-consuming quests, Alexander's own and Masson's own. And I sometimes wondered if if I was on some sort of strange adventure slash fool's errand of my own um quite quite what i was what you know i i'm used to this kind of very very kind of ordered academic life if it's tuesday i must be like lecturing if it's uh wednesday i must be doing whatever and he, and here i was so, sort of um halfway up a mountain in india uh, trying to sort of explain that i was i was here actually for the stories of that alexander the great not for the drugs but that was very kind of you thank you so much uh, but but um there's, there's a word in there's a word in ancient Greek called pothos, which the ancient historians used to describe Alexander, and it's about a longing so great it bursts your heart, a desire for the impossible. I often thought of that word when I was when I was writing about Masson. It very much describes what kind of drove him over kind of mountains and plains and for 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 over a decade to to kind of risk death, to risk everything in search of this impossible dream and. I think I, I think I, I maybe sort of picked up a little bit of that kind of longing, that kind of sense of a story that catches you, um, catches, catches your heart and sweeps you along and just won't let go. Well, Edwin, you, ex- you exude that pathos and um, your interest in this and your passion for this is, um, is truly infectious. Thank you so much for talking to me about this. And you have a book coming out which covers the Charles Masson's journey. When when is that available for people to buy? So this will be in um, May of next year, and it's called um, Alexandria: The Quest for the Lost City. Um, but it's been such a pleasure to talk. Thank you so much for taking the time. Um, it's a real, real bright spark in a in a grey afternoon over here. So thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 